The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? You doing all right this morning? Well, that sounded weak. Are you doing okay? Happy Super Bowl Sunday, by the way. Anybody, who are you cheering for? <laughs> well, I just need to tell you, I, I'm an alumnus of the 2017 College Football National Champions, and I'm also from Atlanta, so I'm not assuming anything, but I may be the lucky charm, all right? I'm pulling for the Falcons. I believe they're going to win today, and uh, it's going to be awesome. Yeah, go Falcons. Hey, welcome. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Story City, and we are completely honored that you would spend a little bit of time with us on a Sunday morning. So if uh, here's what we're going to do for the next few minutes or so. We're going to open up the scriptures like we do every Sunday, and uh, we want to allow God to speak to us through his word. Now, there's a lot of things I'm going to say today. There's nothing more important that will be said than the words of scripture today. So we're in a series. This is the last week of Reset, and we spent five weeks talking about how you think about your work and uh, how you process that. We also talked about how you think about resting well. And then just a couple weeks ago, Craig uh, taught us on um, your spiritual life, how you are processing that in a new year. Because January is always a time when we always think about uh, resetting some things, uh, some new things in life and how we're going to go about achieving those things and walking into those things. And so there's a lot of conventional wisdom about, about, about a lot. And we just chose four subjects, and you could choose a lot of different things that you may be processing. But we thought work, rest, your finances, and your life in Jesus was important enough to spend five weeks to do so. But what we want to say to you over the course of this series is that conventional wisdom has its limits. And if you're going to think about work differently, if you're going to think about rest differently, if you're going to think about your spiritual life and today your finances... It's not conventional wisdom that we want to rely on because it will only take you so far. And so our roadmap for this journey has been scripture. And today, uh, I want to rely on the world's foremost financial expert to teach us about finances. Now, do me a favor. Uh, don't look down. Look at me just for a moment, all right? I realize I'm very aware, I'm self-aware enough to know that finances... Um, can be a troubling subject and a troubling issue, okay? And I'm also aware that if I preached on finances as much as Jesus pre preached on finances, then we probably would not have a church, all right? Jesus, in 38 of his parables, by the way, in two weeks we start a brand new series called The Storytelling God, and we're going to work through some of the parables of Jesus. But in 38 of the parables that Jesus told, at least 16 of them directly mention finances, um, in the scriptures, there's over 2,000 references to finances alone. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said that there are three conversions that every person needs. A conversion of the head, a conversion of the heart, and a conversion of the pocketbook. And so I want to teach you this morning from scripture about how you steward your money. All right. Now I want to make one promise to you. I want to ask you four questions, and at the end, I want to give you two resources. But here's the promise I want to make before we dive into Luke chapter 16. The promise to you this morning is that I promise I will not talk to you about your finances, all right? Can you deal with that? Look at your neighbor and say, praise Jesus, he's not going to talk about my finances, all right? 
If you've got a copy of God's Word, Luke chapter 16, if not, it's going to be on the screen this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one at the Connect Center after the service, all right? Luke chapter 16, and here's how I'm going to do it, Bob, and, and the rest of you guys in here. I'm going to work through this passage uh, verse by verse. Rather than reading the entire story and unfolding it at once, I want to work through it verse by verse and tell the story one verse at a time. Can we do that? <laughs> All right, good. You're, you're awake. Are you awake? Okay. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1, this is a parable that Jesus made up. It's a story that he's telling. It's not a true story. It's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's just a narrative that Jesus makes up, but he wants to drive home an incredible point. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. By the way, we call this the parable of the unrighteous steward. Verse 1, now he, Jesus, was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. Now pause just for a moment. I think it's very good to understand when you are reading narrative in Scripture, you have a clear understanding of who you are and where God is in the story. So let's be very clear at the outset. God is the rich man. You are the manager, okay? God is the rich man, you are the manager, and Jesus is laying out for us, he's making it very clear at the beginning of this parable, he wants to talk about stewardship, and he wants to assert, I'm going to say it multiple times over the course of this message, that nothing you have is yours alone. God owns everything. Your time, your talents, and specifically your treasures. And it's easy to think about your time as being God's because you can't manufacture time. You can't create it. You just exist in it. You think about your talents and, and how you were born and how you were created. And you may be blonde. You may be 6'2". You may, you know, whatever it may be. You may be muscular. And, and, and you can't affect those either. It's the way you were born. And how do we know that? Because you wouldn't have made yourself the way you currently are. But then when you think about your treasures, we just innately think something different about them, right? We think differently about our treasures, our money, our finances, because we can specifically point to a time clock, a tax return, and say, I earned that paycheck. That paycheck is mine because I put the time in to deposit it in my bank account. And what Jesus wants to make very clear at the outset is that you don't own that. That's actually mine, okay? So, so let's work with that premise. It's God is the rich man. You are the manager. And the story moves on. Verse 2. Um, and he called him and he said to him. Now this is, we're, we're now inside the, the story. And the rich man is calling to the man he had employed to manage his estate and manage his possessions. And after he's heard that he squandered his possessions... Then the rich man calls to the manager, and, he's, and, he, and he schedules a meeting with him. And in that meeting, the rich man said, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And I, I think this, is, uh, this, this points beyond the, the, uh, the um, this points beyond space and time, and this is a verse that speaks uh, beyond space and time into the eternal. And what we can diagnose from this as we extract what Jesus wants to say to us is that there will be a point in time where all of us will stand before Jesus and give an accounting of what he's loaned us. It's not necessarily that God gave it to you, the better idea of what you have is that God has entrusted it to you. 
as a wise manager, as a wise steward, and at some point in time, you will stand before God and you, like the manager in this story, will give an accounting as to how you stewarded what God has given to you. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 7 through 18, it, it has a lot to say there, but in essence, he's, the scripture is talking about the land and what, how we produce off the land and what we produce from the land belongs to the Lord. And specifically, the Old Testament used a term called the tithe, and even the land required a tithe. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God says, when you get in the land, do not forget the Lord because it is him who gives you the ability to earn that wealth. And there will be an accounting for how we've stewarded. Now, verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do? He's left the meeting, and now he's processing his termination letter. He's processing his future. And the manager says, what should I do since my master is taking the management away from me? And then he says, I'm not strong enough to dig. Um, I can identify with this. <laughs> I'm more of a white-collar guy than a blue-collar guy, just honestly, right? My wife fixes everything in my home. And the manager looks at the scenario, and he says, I, I'm, I can't enter into this physical labor to rectify the situation, to account for what the manager, had, the, the rich man has entrusted me to. So then he says, I'm even ashamed to beg. And, and so then in verses 4 through 8, this is how the manager begins to deal with what the rich man has said you've been unfaithful with. Here's what it says, verse 4. I know what I shall do, the manager says, so that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. I'm going to get to that in just a second. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe to my master? Verse 6, and the guy who owed something to his master said, a hundred measures of oil. And the manager said back to him, well, take your bill, sit down, and quickly write 50. Verse 7, then he said to another man, and how much do you owe? And he said back to the man, a hundred measures of wheat. And then the manager said to the man who owed his master, take your bill and write 80. Seems a little sketchy. Like, like what's happening here now? Verse 8. Now listen to this. And the master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. A bit confusing. For the sons of this age, the manager, I mean the rich man says about the manager, are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. So the manager has created a confusing situation here. And on the surface, this seems to be a difficult parable to navigate and to figure out exactly what Jesus is commending and what Jesus is actually saying, this is unfaithful. And so on the surface, it seems like Jesus is commending the manager for, for acting in, in sort of an unscrupulous way. Does that make sense? Like, like, is Jesus really saying, like, like, that sounds like what Goldman Sachs executives would do. That sounds like what politicians would do. Like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Is Jesus really commending the manager for acting this way? Well, when we look at the idea of shrewdness, we understand that shrewdness has this, um, this suggestion that the manager is acting in such a way that he's carefully providing for his future. 
He's carefully providing for his future. Now, when you dig into um, commentaries and what people say about this passage, most commentators will tell you what's happening here is that the manager has gone to people who owe the rich man. And he knows that he's in a scenario where the rich man is owed a certain amount of money based on the debts that have been um, issued. And so in order to rectify the situation, the rich man says to the people who owe money, how much do you owe? You owe 50, you owe 100. Well, if you will pay 50, I will pay 50. How much do you owe? You owe 80, uh, you owe 100, you pay 80, I'll pay 20. And so it seems like there's some shady dealings going on here. But what Jesus is commending is, uh, is, that, is that the manager is acting wisely in reference and in deference to his preferred future. So in other words, if you had a mortgage and I came to you today, um, I would be your best friend if I did this. If you had a mortgage and I came to you today and I said, how much is your mortgage? $3,000? That's great. That's, a, that's Okay, you pay $1,500, I'll pay $1,500. At the end of the day, the mortgage company will get $3,000. Is there anything sinful about that? No. There's nothing sinful about that. And so, and so, in essence, that's what the manager is doing. But in what, but but in the in the grand scheme of things, what the manager is doing is that he has invested wealth in order to secure a preferred future. So what is the preferred future that he's trying to secure? The preferred future that he's trying to secure goes back to the scriptures so that it says, after uh, the, manager's, the, the rich man's debts have been cleared, those whom I helped settle their debts, I can go back to them and say to them, remember, I helped you pay your debt. Will you welcome me into your home when I have no place to go? And that's instructive for us, and we're going to get to it here in just a moment. I think the question we need to process is, we need to process this idea of wealth, but then on the surface of the, uh, the, the, uh, the parable, we need to understand what is the preferred future that Jesus is commending us to be wise about. Now, verse 9, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. Now, don't get off center on this idea of unrighteousness. You may associate unrighteousness with evil or with sin, but let's, let's, uh, let's substitute unrighteousness for the idea of worldly. In other words, um, world, the, the wealth of the world, okay? And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of the world so that when it fails, verse 9, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. This is Jesus now extracting from the story. He's trying to teach the people who are listening, specifically the disciples. And he's making a point. And this is equally confusing as the narrative that's already progressed, right? So on the surface, it feels like Jesus is saying, use money to make friends, right? Let me help you understand. Let me, let me tell you what I think Jesus is saying here. What I think Jesus is saying here is, use money to make friends, Use money to make friends. That sounds a little bit shady, Pastor. But he put a caveat at the end of his, his assertion here. His, 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 uh, his, his, his teaching principle, his one point in the parable. And the caveat at the end was, so that they will receive you into eternal dwellings. The whole point. 
The whole point is that as a wise steward, as a Christian who is stewarding and managing what God has given you, use your money, invest it into people's lives so that when you get to heaven, they will be there to welcome you in. So what does that look like? So that looks like you as a neighbor who has developed relationships with those who live around you and it's Super Bowl Sunday and, and you invite your neighbors over for Super Bowl Sunday. I realize uh, we are behind time on the West Coast and it starts at 3.30, but at some point in the day, what that looks like and why being a wise steward of the money that God has given you so that at some point, those people whom you've invested into will stand in heaven and when you get there, they will be there too. What that looks like is that on Super Bowl Sunday, you invite a neighbor over, you go to Ralph's, you go to Vaughn's, you go to fresh and easy, you go to, what's the health store? Whatever, you take your preference. Some of you are like, I'm a vegetarian, I don't eat meat. Today you're gonna eat meat, all right? And you go to the store and you buy a filet. Not the cheap filet, not the one that expired yesterday that's on sale, the bacon wrap filet. And you cook a bacon wrap filet and you spend your money to invest in those around you so that at some point in time, you have the opportunity to introduce them to Jesus so that at some point in time, in eternity, when you get there, they will be there too because you invested your money wisely to secure a preferred future. Jesus is saying, as a manager of what I've given you, as a manager of what I've given you, as a steward of the possessions that you have, and not just your treasures, by the way, your time and your talents. Use what I have given to you and so that at some point in time when you walk into eternity and you look me face to face, eye to eye, there are people around that can say, I was the fruit of his investment. We should be wiser stewards with the eternal treasures than the manager was with e eternal, I mean, with the earthly treasures that he was given. So stewardship is the context here. Stewardship is the context, it's the idea, it's the thought process, being wiser stewards, being wiser managers with what God has given us than how the world is with what God has given them. And let me just pause for a moment and say to you, this, this could be um, the indictment on the church and Christianity in many ways. And by the way, this is not a message to uh, get you to tithe more. <laughs> you were very generous in 2016 and gave 74% more than what we actually projected. God has been faithful here, and you, many of you, have been faithful in our church. And by the way, if you stop tithing and we can't pay the bills, I'm going to drive Uber so I can show up on Sunday and continue to teach you the scriptures. Christians should lead the planet in how we steward our money, in how we 
manage what God has given us on loan for a very finite period of time and we can't be afraid to use it for the kingdom of God. I used to think people who made a lot of money uh, I used to think like, like people who made extraordinary amounts of money, that's kind of sinful. And I especially thought that way about, about people in ministry who make lots of money. And I thought, gosh, that seems very, very sinful. But can I say to you, you can be on food stamps and be more disobedient than the man making six figures. It's not about the amount. It's about the management. You okay? <laughs> Tap your neighbor right now and say, I'm okay, all right? Ecclesiastes verse five, chapter five, verse thirteen. Solomon. Uh, it, at some point, we're gonna we're gonna preach through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's so good, and I think it's so relevant for any city, but specifically for ours. Ecclesiastes five thirteen. Solomon says, "I have seen a grievous grievous evil under the sun: wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners." Now, verse ten through twelve in in Luke chapter sixteen. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, verse 11, if you have been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? Verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, Who will give you that which is your own? Jesus uses faithful here three times. I think he's making a point. When you read the Bible and you do Bible study, when you see a term or when you see a phrase used over and over in the passage that you're studying, it's a good indication that God is trying to say something to you. So in this passage, Jesus uses faithfulness three times. And he's saying it's not about the amount. It's about the faithfulness to what I've given you. And a lot of us just think if I just get more money, I, uh, it would solve a lot of my problems. But the reality is that's a lottery mentality. You understand that, right? We don't have time to, to digest this idea that rarely in life do you get big returns with little investments. But the lottery mentality is if I had more, I would do more. And we don't have time to talk about everybody who's won the lottery and the amount of people who have committed suicide after winning the lottery, the amount of people who declare bankruptcy after winning the lottery. The reality is if you talk to somebody who has more money than you, they will all tell you it takes much more work to manage what you have when you have more. So let me tell you a little known fact about God. <laughs> if you've been faithful with what God has given you, Sorry, let me, let me say it on the negative. I had a preaching professor who always said, people will receive it better when you preach it from the positive, but let me preach it from the negative for the emphasis today. <laughs> if you have not been faithful with what God has given you, look at me real quick. Let me, with all compassion, with a pastoral heart, with the integrity of my heart, let me say it to you. If you have not been faithful with what God has given you, quit asking him for more. Why? Because if he gave you more, it would only increase your disobedience. I don't get a lot of amens from that. <laughs> Everybody okay? Everybody okay? Your story is welcome here. And you may come in one way. The goal is not to stay there. So if you came in and you're like, I've, this is mine. There's nobody else. Just, just, your, your story is welcome here. And there's a journey that we're taking you on. The Bible says God's not going to give you more than you can handle, even though some of us wish we had more money. It's in essence, God is saying, well, get your hands around this. Be faithful in this. And when you are faithful in little, I will give you the ability to be faithful and the opportunity to be faithful in much.
It's kind of like thinking, I've had it pretty good with one wife. I've managed it fairly well. Or, or I'm sorry. <laughs> or thinking, I can't live with one wife, right? Like, 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 I just can't do it with one wife. So what should I do? I'm going to go out and get 10 more, right? That's a, that's a terrible thought. That's a bad investment. <laughs> now verse 11. Same thing with husbands, by the way. Verse 11, therefore, if you have been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? Jesus keeps upping this idea here. And when he says unrighteous, all he's saying is, is, is this idea of worldly wealth. What is of this world? Time, talents, treasures. And the reality is that Jesus shockingly talks more about money than he even does the kingdom of God, heaven and hell all combined. But Paul talks about this idea of rewards as well, right? Like, he talks about this idea of a reward that's waiting for you in heaven. He also talks about being co-inheritors with Christ. What Christ has, we shall have. John 3.16, God is a giver. He loves to give. And when you handle worldly wealth, the wealth of the world... Jesus says he will welcome you into the eternal riches based on your management now with what he gave you. That's not a works-based salvation. That's not if you do this right, God will get you right and check your box. We don't need to think that way. We don't need to think in terms of, of like, if I mismanage my money, God will never allow me into heaven. No, when Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, you have been justified, he means there's been a legal declaration, there's been a watershed statement, there is a yes or no moment in your life, and if you've been declared not guilty by God, nothing will forever change that. But it does not absolve us from the responsibility to be stewards of what God has given. Verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? I, I really believe God wants you to be free from this, this, uh, this, this cage of money, this cage of, uh, of desire, this idol. Money is, is such a strange thing. It's such a strange thing because it's, it's, uh, it's the closest thing that we have to independence, Right? It's the closest thing. It's the first thing we keep and the last thing we give away because when we give it away, we are declaring that we are dependent on something else. Money says to us, it gives us a false idea of security and independence. And God is saying, that is antithetical to what I am asking of your life. I am asking that you are wholly dependent on me. So if money is the last thing that you have your arms around, you have your fingers around, as I said last week in terms of rest and what another pastor has said, if God has to break your fingers, he will do so to keep you from harm. Preaching on money is not fun. <laughs> Leviticus 27.30 gives us this idea that it all belongs to the Lord. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. If you read Leviticus here, you see the name of the Lord is in all caps. The Hebrews uh, had this idea, this thought that God's name was too worthy of even speaking, and we can learn a lot from them about it. They substituted the Lord's name. They put it in all caps. It was Yahweh. 
when it comes to the tithe and everything you have, God says, it's mine, it's holy. Malachi 3, God says, trust me. Then he says, test me. Then he says, bring it. <laughs> and then he says, he says, then he says, trust me, I will open up the heavens in essence. Uh, I'm, I'm not that sort of preacher. You can relax. I'm not asking you to give a certain amount of money, promising seven times over. But I believe there's some truth in the fact that when we are independent from money and dependent on God, life becomes a lot clearer. I believe in 2017, some of us need to reset our thinking on how we approach money. As a church, by the way, we model this for you. We're not asking, I, I feel like I'm a hypocrite to ask you of, to do something that I don't practice myself. By the way, if any of you ever thought about coming on staff at Story City, you need to understand that as a part of being a staff member of Story City Church, you are required. <laughs> you say that's legalistic. Nope, I say that's the grace of God in protecting you and our church. But as a church, we practice what we're asking you to do. We give away 10% of everything that comes in. 6% of everything we took in in 2016, we gave away to plant churches. By the way, you need to understand the first 10% of what we give away goes specifically to the church. Goes specifically to this idea of planting more churches, training more pastors, because we believe that when God asked for a tithe, he was talking about his house. And so when we give 10%, we want to give to his house as well. So 6% of everything we gave went to, uh, in 2016, to train pastors who, will, um, who are in seminaries, who will one day uh, pastor a church. And it could be uh, in Los Angeles. It could be in Atlanta. It could be in Mozambique. It could be in Syria. It could be anywhere around the world. Also, part of that 6% goes to um, um, church plants around the world. It also goes to fund missionaries who are around the world planting churches. And then we have another 4% that's designated that we specifically take and we look with strategic eyes and discerning eyes and we say, where is a pastor and a church that's beginning that we want to financially wrap our arms around? We did that twice this year in 2016. By the way, there are many people in the church planning world that would look at a one-year-old church. We turn one years old next week. They would look at a one-year-old church and they would say, you are the church plant. Keep the 10% for the first couple years. We flipped that and we said, we want to trust God with this. Whether it's wise or not, years will tell the story. But we have said, we're going to take 4%. We've identified two churches in our city. And last year, we gave 4% of our income to churches in Los Angeles because we believe in them and we want to take the tithe seriously. God's word is true. You can trust him. Can I be transparent with you for just a moment? Let me come from behind the light. Can you still see me if I come up here? Story City is, I know you look around and you're like, wow, big band, big lights, big auditorium. <laughs> they serve the city. They must have lots of money. In fact, we've heard it from some of you. They have lots of money. <laughs> can I tell you, we don't have lots of money. We are dependent on the faithful giving, and any church plant, just like Story City, has a set number of time, amount of years, where internally we must fund the vision that God has placed in this fellowship in order to be a church that's sustainable for the long term, that can preach the gospel and see people welcome us once we get to heaven. And we're not there yet. 
That's not what this sermon is about today. Like, we're in desperate need. You better give or we won't be here next week. Got to turn the lights off. That's not what this is about. But we believe that we can trust God's word because it is true. And it will never let you down. And so when we give 10% away, we're saying, God, we really don't even have that. (laughs) We really don't even have that. And we should probably be saving that for a time yet to come when we have churches who come off of our role, who have been financially supporting us for a finite period of time, when they withdraw because they're moving on to plan another church, we need money in the bank. We could, we could rest in that position, but we are saying, God, we believe your word is true, and we're going to rest in that, and we believe you are for us and not against us. And by the way, we don't lose an ounce of sleep any night over it. Well, let me close this out. <laughs> I don't even think I got all the way down to 13, but we'll, 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 we'll do it another time. Let me ask you four questions, okay? Let, let, me, let, let me just allow God's word, the most important word spoken today, to till the soil of your heart for just a moment. And it's concerning your stewardship. Now listen to me, listen to me. <laughs> your story is welcome here. You need to diagnose where you are and what God has for you. And I realize that everybody has a different story and there may be different circumstances and scenarios. So let me just walk through these questions and let, the, the, let these uh, questions till the soil of your heart. Stewardship question number one. We're going to speak of it in terms of levels. Like, like, not like you're better at level four than you are at level one, but, but this is a, a thought about faithfulness. Number one, what do I want to give of my resources? What do I want to give of my resources? This may look like someone who comes to church and the ushers pass the plate and, and somebody drops a $5 bill or $10 bill in it and you miss church the next week, but you don't make up the $10 that you miss, but you give $10 the next time you came. And, and, and that's the thought that says, what do I want to give of what I own? Next level says, what does God want me to give of my resources? That's when you begin to discern that God actually has a will. And when we try to unfold what his will is, we think about what his will is post-resurrection and what his will is, what Jesus' will is to do the will of the Father. And we find ourselves in the same place where we arrived in this parable, that there is an eternal outlook here and heaven is the perspective and we should be wise stewards because there will be people there who will welcome us because we were wise with our money. But we have half of it right. What does God want me to do with my resources. We're not quite there yet. Level three, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to give with God's resources? We arrive at this point where we understand it's God. This is God's. What does he want me to do with it? How does he want me to faithfully steward that? Level four, this is a place where I believe such a minuscule amount of Christians get to in the Western Hemisphere. And I don't say that as an accusation against you. I just say, this is even the place that my wife and I, at some point in time, hope we arrive at. What does God want me to keep (laughs) of God's resources? What does God want me to keep of God's resources? Not, not what, 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 what can I take here, but, 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 in the totality of the whole thing, what does God want me to keep? I have a friend in Atlanta who is a very young guy, and he is one of the youngest partners in an accounting firm. That's a global accounting firm, and he has specifically told me 
that he is working to a place over the next 10 years where he, he has such a fixed amount of income that he needs and then he gives away like 80% of his income. I don't have time to unroll the story, but you know the story of Rick Warren. When he wrote The Purpose Driven Life, sold 100 million copies, wow. Got his first check from Purpose Driven Life. He wrote a check to the church for his first 25 years worth of salary. <laughs> he said, my wife and I started out with a certain percentage. When we got married, we upped that percentage. We continue to up that percentage until we've gotten to the point where we give 90% away. Like, I can't give 90% away. I can't even pay my mortgage right now. I understand. But some of us may say, if I had $100 million, I would give 90% away. Would you? Are you doing that now? Faithful in little. The opportunity to be faithful in much. I want to pray for us in this moment. We're going to take communion here in just a second. I want to, I want to say to you before we partake in communion. We've got our tables to the right, to the left of me. And then for all of you who are gluten-free, we have your option as well. Um, before you partake of the communion table, I want to say to you that the scripture warns us that we should not take communion lightly. We should allow the spirit of the living God to tend to our heart and our soul as we are remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and what he has done. I would like to pointedly ask you to remember today the death, burial, and resurrection directly points us to the fact that what you have today is not your own. And in fact, God went to great lengths to put it on loan to you, to give that to you. Before you take of the communion today, I want to ask you to allow the Spirit of God to search your heart, search your mind, search your soul, and explore where God would have you faithfully in terms of your finances. Last thing, and then we're going to sing a couple songs. Maybe you came in today and 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 this message sounds strange to you and you're like, this is exactly what I expected of a church. They're always talking about money. This is actually the first time we've ever talked about money. But we're not afraid to talk about money. 15% of Jesus' messages were about money. <laughs> but beyond money, the greatest need in your life before you ever give a dollar away is to look Jesus in the eyes and to acknowledge before him that you and him have a problem. That problem is called sin. And unless there's ever a resolution to your problem, the result is death, both in this life and the next. And I want to say to you today, if you came in here with all passion and compassion and you've never given your life to Jesus, may this be a moment. There's pastors around. We'd love to pray with you, to talk with you about it at our connect table after the service is over. We would love to dialogue with you about a relationship with Jesus. Lord, we love you. I'm reminded that it's more blessed to give than to receive. God, it's not a trite statement. It's not a bumper sticker. It's not a Facebook slogan. God, it's rooted in the heart of who you are as a generous God. You love to give. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus, may you find us faithful, not guilty today, not overcome with shame about how we've managed our finances at this point. May the Spirit of God do a true work and allow us to see who we really are and how we've really managed. And God, may there be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but may you lead us from where we are to where you want us to be. In Jesus' name, everybody said.